This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. More stuff about the waterfront. Uh, this has uh, been an ongoing concern for many, many years here in this city, of course. And uh, a lot of the uh, the consternation, I guess, uh, seems to uh, focus on the Sarkoa restaurant, uh, which has been down there for quite some time right now. It was initially, of course, it was federal land, and there was a remember the federal water thing that was there there, and it was not much of a thing. So they, the city took it over. And they were looking for bidders. Long story short, the uh, Sarkoa restaurant ended up opening up. It has been a bone of contention for quite some time right now. It's too noisy. There's not enough business. Uh, what was in the lease? Who promised whom to what? Uh, on and on it goes. Well, now it looks like Sarkoa has come to an end. Uh, they are auctioning off the equipment, the furniture, the fixtures. Notwithstanding the fact that uh, the uh, one of the owners, uh, Sam Destro, uh, pledged at the beginning of the summer that they weren't going away. Uh, kind of looks like they might. What's going on? John Best has been covering the store for quite some time, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Keller Show on CHML. Hi, John. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. Thank you. Were you surprised by this uh, this latest turn? Not really. Uh, you know, this thing has been obviously in the works for quite a while, and uh, um, at the end of the day, uh, there, there wasn't going to be a solution that was going to allow a quick resumption of business down there. So I think they're, they're you know, they're at a point where they're trying to salvage some value out of, uh, out of uh, some of their huge investment. They invested $5 million in leasehold improvements, and unfortunately most of that is not movable, uh, but uh, at least they get the furniture and fixtures out of there. And, uh, um, you know, th- there's kind of an eerie silence over this thing right now, to be honest. Uh, both both sides have lawyered up pretty good, and I I think really this is it is probably the end of Sarcoa as a as a going concern, uh, but I don't by no means the end of this uh, dispute. Well, maybe one of the reasons they're quiet on this is there's an outstanding lawsuit right now, fifteen million dollar legal battle. Uh, Sarcoa is going after the Waterfront Trust and of course the City of Hamilton as well. Now. Uh, we could spend, uh, I guess, another two hours talking about the nuts and bolts of that, who said what and where the, uh, the, the, the assertions are and the finger-pointing is right now, but nobody seems to want to talk about it. Well, that's true, and, I mean, that's typical of any lawsuit, but uh, I, I would say that if, if we're talking about whether they were uh, given to believe that they could have music on the patio, if that's the issue, and I think it is really the core issue, in the suit, I mean, there's, if nothing else, there's photographic evidence, there's news coverage of the opening, but, there, you know, there's photographic evidence of, of uh, you know, board members. I saw a picture of Tom Jackson uh, on the opening night uh, greeting the audience, and he's standing on a stage that's got two great big speakers and a keyboard and a couple of electric guitars behind him, so it would be be very difficult to claim that uh, you know we had no idea that the music was going to be amplified uh, it, it clearly was a was a rock music setup and uh, so you know we'll, we'll see where that all goes and of course we've seen the lease the original lease that was drawn that had this uh, diametrically opposed language in it on the one hand saying that there would be music on the patio and then another line saying but all local ordinances need to be adhered to. So uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting trial, I think. Uh, although these things tend to drag on so long that people lose interest. 
Yeah, but John, you've been doing a lot of work on this. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, before any of the other media, including ourselves, frankly, we're de- rolling our sleeves up onto this. You were lifting up rocks and trying to find some stuff like this and uh, trying to get some answers. And you mentioned the lease itself, and I know that you went over the lease uh, and you wrote articles about that in the Bay Observer. What kind of response did you get from both sides when you said, tried to explore, <laughs> I, I guess, get some sort of an explanation about the incongruity of the language in that lease? Well, really, um, I don't get any response uh, when I when I try to uh, get information directly from uh, the Waterfront Trust. I recently requested uh, the minutes of their meetings for the last two years. They say their meetings are public. I uh, approached a board member who forwarded my request to uh, Werner Plessel, the executive director. That was three weeks ago, and uh, I still haven't seen those minutes. So I, I don't get any response, really, uh, when I, you know, I get some response, but, but very seldom. I have to go through the city, mostly, because they fund uh, a fair amount of this activity, and at the end of the day, uh, as you uh, mentioned earlier, and, and you know, it's ultimately it's going to be the city that's going to backstop this lawsuit. Uh, however, you know, not only backstop it from the standpoint of probably being ultimately responsible for whatever the settlement may be, but also uh, the legal fees that are piling up as we speak. There was a, an assertion, by the way, I should mention just before I get into that point, that uh, we did try to reach out to Mr. Destro, one of the owners of the, of the establishment, and uh, he thought it not wise to speak about this publicly uh, and, until they get some, I guess, a little further down the legal road on this. Uh, likewise with Councillor Farr, who's, uh, of course, the representative for that area down in Ward 2, uh, didn't want to talk about this because of the legal implications. So, uh, as you say, they're, they're kind of on the sidelines on this. But I get the sense that there's an awful lot Mr. Destro would like to say about this uh, and maybe shed some light on this. But the reality here is he did make an assertion, uh, and, and even I guess you could categorize it as an accusation a couple of months ago, John, that he thought that the city didn't want him down there and they were doing what they could to try to force him out of business. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, the old uh, Watergate saying, and I hesitate to use uh, that phrase, but uh, they, they talk about follow the money. And if you, if you really look at the situation down there with that piece of property, uh, the rent uh, that is being paid is just under 12000 a month. So that's 144000 a year. So over 10 years, that would be, say, $1.4 million. The... What would the value be of that piece of pure seven eight uh, if it were turned over for development for something like a hotel or uh, you know maybe a, a continuation of the uh, of the medium rise uh, projects that are being uh, discussed right now? In fact, uh, we saw some new diagrams come out for that. The, you know the best value of that property clearly would be some form of development that would also produce, uh, you know, taxation. And uh, there's no question uh, there was uh, a, a group in Toronto that were interested in, uh, in exploring that. Uh, they were willing to pay the back rent to end the dispute between Sarko and the city. And they were, uh, and, and in return, they were hoping to partner with Sarkoa uh, in, you know, some kind of future development opportunity there. Um, that 
hasn't happened, and I'm not sure the ins and outs of why it hasn't happened, but, you know, there, there probably would be more opportunities along those lines because uh, the, the property that the, dis- the former Discovery Center is sitting on is probably the most valuable piece of property in, in the entire city. Well, sure, and, and let's just remind ourselves that the, the Sarkoa, the building, the actual bricks and mortar of that building, it's a retrofit. I mean, that was actually built by the federal government, the Marine Discovery Center, was located there, and I think about 10 people went there over the number of years that was open. It just never did really take off to the extent that people wanted it to. So Sarkoa inherited the building. But, yeah, it's not lost on me, and nor is it lost, I think, on a lot of people, though, John, that as the city is moving forward with these uh, grandiose plans, and we're going to talk about it on the show today, February 7 and 8, uh, the Sarkoa restaurant is right smack dab in the middle of that. And and I'm sure that there are a lot of people that are saying, uh, listen, uh, I could do something better than that. Now, nobody's saying that publicly right now because obviously they get slapped with a lawsuit too. But you have to wonder what's going on behind the scenes. Well, and, and here's the, uh, I'm not going to say a lost opportunity, but here's where the city is at some risk. What developer uh, would enter into any kind of agreement as long as this lawsuit is dragging on? I mean, it's really, uh, to some degree, it's in the city's interest to try to settle this lawsuit or at least bring it to a, to this, a hasty, uh, you know, a, a expedited conclusion uh, because uh, it, the, the property with that hanging over it is not going to be attractive, uh, even though the property itself is extremely attractive. But, but as long as there's that lawsuit hanging over it, it's not likely anybody is, is going to come forward with a, with a more concrete proposal. And, you know, when, when we're talking about the city and lawsuits, uh, you know, typically they, they, the strategy, frankly, is because the city theoretically has unlimited funds for funding lawyers, they can usually starve out an opponent. You know, we're thinking about the three guys that were, uh, that were, uh, were wrongfully dismissed or said they were wrongfully dismissed, and, and that was a case where we, we cranked up, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees um, defending. This is a little different because these gentlemen that, that own Sarcoa are, are, have been successful businessmen, and they have resources, uh, and they're angry. So there's, you know, it's not going to be one of these situations where they're just going to go away after they've been, you know, after the puck has been ragged for a certain amount of time. Well, especially because they, there's nowhere for them to go. They're not going away because they're local. That's <laughs> uh, right. And, uh, and obviously their reputations are at stake, and I know that that seems to be one of the concerns as well. And you got to stain on your record like this. Uh, you want to have that you know, cleaned up as quickly as you can because I'm assuming these guys, well, they already are doing business here in this community and other endeavors and probably want to continue along that way, and this is a black mark for them right now. So there's there's that element of it that, that's coming into place as well. But I guess the greater question here, John, and you've touched on this in some of the pieces you've written in the Bay Observer about this, is is the business or lack of business acumen that seems to be what's going on with the Waterfront Trust. Uh, because the lease that uh, they, the nudge, nudge, wink, wink, yeah, go ahead, put the speakers out there. No, you're not allowed to have the speakers, uh, is really the crux of this lawsuit. And uh, as you said, there is no legal department for the Waterfront Trust. I mean, if they've hired outside counsel, you know who's paying for it. And if they lose this lawsuit, you know who's paying for it. That, that's exactly right. I, I mean, it's uh, uh, we, we're in a very nebulous situation right now where we really don't know, um, you know, who's going to end up paying for the property. And, uh, of course, you had uh, Councillor Skelly on yesterday making the point that 
uh, is this the, the kind of organization that, that we want deeply involved in that massive uh, um, development project down there with, with these question marks hanging over it? And, uh, you know, I think she makes a, it's a point I've uh, alluded to in the past, and I think she's right. We certainly need a lot of answers here, but this doesn't look good right now where we've got, uh, you know, we've got good news and bad news happening in the same part of town at the same time. And, uh, you know, you, you, this should be a situation where it's nothing but good news. Well, and we are, we've been told time and time again by city staff and city councilors right now that, that lawsuits hanging over top of things like this obviously can hold things up. I mean, do we need to get into the stadium again? You know, apparently we're not going to get a soccer team until that gets resolved. We're not going to get a Grey Cup until that gets resolved. Well, what about this great big piece of land right down here, right in the middle of where this development's supposed to go? Who is going to touch this? I'm sure there's a lot of people, John, that are interested in this. But as long as this lawsuit is hanging over here, uh, does that hold up development? Does that hold up possible investment? It certainly does. And if you look at those uh, drawings uh, that the city released yesterday, those concept drawings, it, and and you look at the names of the people that have submitted those drawings. They're they're by and large not local, uh, so this city is uh, under a bit of a microscope, uh, a positive microscope, in the sense that you know for the first time we're attracting uh, major investors from outside the not for the first time, but but certainly uh, it's a welcome thought that that we're getting investors from all over uh, Ontario looking at us and uh, you know you, it's hard to have this situation next door to what i think is going to be a you know a fabulous project for for hamilton but and herein lies the problem because i know that uh, that you've received some criticism for trying to find some answers about this every time we do a segment i'm going to get some pushback i always do from people to saying just leave these guys alone they're wonderful people they've done the trail etc cetera, etc cetera. And and I'm not taking sides in this situation. I'm not you know going to start carrying the water for Sarcoa here too. I mean they've they've got their own legal team and they've got their own arguments and they'll do that I'm sure, in the matter of course. It's it's not that it happened to Sarcoa as far as I'm concerned, John. It's how it happened and why it happened. It could have been anybody in that particular restaurant uh, or that particular establishment. But the the greater concern here that I really hope the city addresses is why is this going on. Well, uh, exactly, and and you have to remember that when when Sarcoa was uh, first emerged and when this deal was signed, it happened at a time when the Waterfront Trust was absolutely desperate for cash. They had uh, run up uh, pretty significant losses, uh, operating losses uh, over you know ever since the money got spent on the trails. They've really been existing on their commercial activities and whatever they could scrounge from the city. Uh, but uh, they were in very very desperate need of cash at the time, and, and this Sarcoa deal was seen as uh, uh, you know something that would solve that problem, would provide uh, income. It, it would uh, it would you know at that point, of course, the Discovery Center was really a white elephant, and now you're going to get an occupant in there. Oh, there's supposed to be two occupants, if you remember the story. Yeah, oh, there's going to be a restaurant or maybe a pizza place or something else. And they have all these grand plans, and it just didn't work out. So, But I think the need for cash was the paramount motivation for this deal, and I think it had a lot to do with the fingers-crossed lease that, uh, uh, you know, that, that sort of sanctioned music and at the same time had a loophole that, that would say, hey, we had a clause here that 
disallowed music. So I think there was a bit of fingers crossed when this lease was drawn up, hoping that everything would work out for the best. And meanwhile, we now have revenue from a property that essentially wasn't revenue producing. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, everybody would go away happy, but that's not what happened. The the music became a not only a sore spot in the North End, but uh, even across the Bay in Burlington. And, you know, the thing kind of blew up, and suddenly the Waterfront Trust found itself in a position of having to enforce noise bylaws. you got to remember that, that at the time there was a huge public meeting uh, protesting the noise, and uh, there, there were actually city bylaw officers who were going around saying, well, we can't do anything because it's on federal land. And, and even the police department was telling people that. Uh, so where did that notion come from, that, that maybe uh, Sarcoa would be exempt because it was on federal land? And, and certainly the Sarcoa people were told that, that that, that would, uh, you know, you don't worry, uh, you're on federal land, uh, local ordinances don't apply. Very bizarre stuff. Uh, John, we've got to break it off at this point. Certainly with us, not the last chapter in this saga. Uh, thanks so much for the input into this. Greatly appreciate it. Okay, Bill, my pleasure. John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Convicted killer Robert Bajero is being released on bail uh, sometime this weekend, uh, sooner than later, actually. Uh, to the surprise of some, to be quite frank, it's in uh, Susan Claremont's column today. Susan, of course, is the award-winning crime reporter for the Hamilton Spectator. She joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show to talk about things. Morning, Susan. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. How are you? I'm fine. Listen, i got to tell you, when I saw this on the online version of the spec, I, I, I thought this was an old story, that it accidentally been put back up on the bed. I thought, no, that can't be. And then I started reading it. I thought, it, it caught me by surprise. How did you react when you, you got the news about this? Uh, honestly, I wasn't surprised. Um, you, you know, it's funny that you said that. I have um, in my computer, in my files about the Badger case, uh, I, I actually had to keep re-slugging the name of this story because I already had so many stories called Badgero on Bail. Um, this is actually the fourth time that he's been out on bail. Um, he was on bail during his entire last murder trial. Um, so he, he's been on bail lots of times, and I was expecting him to get bail again this time, and he did. This is one of those bizarre things about computers. I guess I run into that too. Uh, Badger on bail, and your your computer says you already have that. Do you want this one to replace the old one? No, exactly. I don't. This is a different exactly. one. And, yeah. and the computer's probably even saying to you, "You're kidding." I mean, because yeah. no, who expected this? Really? It's well, it's just you know the latest twist in what is for me the most fascinating court case I've ever covered. Um, as you know, and as I'm sure everybody in Hamilton knows, uh, this is a precedent-setting case. Uh, Robert Badger is the first person in Canada to be tried four times for the same first-degree murder. Um, it's a case that's been going on for 36 years. And just this past December, a jury in Kitchener uh, found him once again guilty of the first-degree murder of Diane Rowendowitz. So uh, since mid-December, Badro has been back in prison, um, but now he's getting out again. Talk to me about the process, because I know you got some legal opinions on this as you uh, prepared the, the, the column that, uh, that's in the spec today, Susan. Uh, I, I guess, you know, you expect after a conviction there's going to be an appeal. That, that 
kind of goes, that's a matter of course. Right. But yeah. to actually, uh, somebody who's a convicted killer actually get bail, that doesn't strike me as something that happens very often. No, you're exactly right. The um, uh, the appeal process, that's standard. That's expected anytime someone's convicted of first-degree murder. Um, I don't think I've ever done a case where, where the um, convicted person hasn't appealed. So, um, so we already knew that was happening. But what is extremely unusual is to have a convicted killer um, released on bail while awaiting his appeal. Uh, it, it's happened before to um, you know a few times, but it's it's pretty rare. Um, but what that speaks to, I think, in this case is largely the fact that Badro never left this area. You know, the, the murder happened in 1981. Um, Bajra wasn't arrested for 17 years after that. Um, but he never left. He's always stayed here. He um, has kept his nose clean as far as we know. There have been no um, additional charges laid against him. When he has been on bail, he has abided by all of his conditions. So, uh, you know, he, he, the reality is he has a good track record that way. He hasn't been a flight risk. Um, he hasn't reoffended, and uh, he hasn't appeared to be any kind of threat to, to society. So, um, so as distasteful as it is, and believe me, I get that, um, he was a, an excellent candidate for bail. Well, and you point that out so correctly in the in the piece that you wrote today too, Susan. That obviously the the reaction that most of us are going to have, and the one that I think I had and everybody else did when they first saw this, of course, was uh, "You're kidding!" and and there's this right. incredulous pushback about all this, and and the emotional pushback, and I get that too. But you all in the piece today, you laid out and simply said, "Look at this is the criteria for bail in our criminal justice system. He meets it, whether you like it or not. He meets it." It's true, and uh, you know, um, it, it doesn't sit well with a lot of people. I spoke with uh, Carl Verendowitz. He's the nephew of murder victim Diane Verendowitz, and and he said, you know, he sat through that entire trial, as did I last fall for for two months and plus. Um, and now today he's saying, what the hell was that all about? What was the point of that? If we're right back to Badro living out in the community, going about his, his business and having freedom, what has changed after this murder trial? Having said that, though, as I say, you've got a file, uh, I don't know how thick it is now, Susan, about this, this well, I was going to say the Badro trial, the Badro trials, really. Yeah. Uh, and given some of the twists and turns that you've covered and written about, uh, there's probably nothing surprises you about this now. It's it's true. It really doesn't. Um, you know, this story is never going to end. This case will never end. Um, you know, we have uh, Badro will be getting out sometime in the next few days, I expect. Um, it will take probably... Uh, uh, you know, at minimum a year, more likely a few years before we get to the actual appeal. Um, there could possibly be a fifth trial, although I think that's a bit unlikely. Um, and if not, you know, then he's he's serving his time in prison. But then we get into 
the parole process and all the the um, hearings and, and whatnot that goes along with that. So it is never going to end. I know you use the word unlikely, and I'm, I, as you go back over your file, I'm sure you're thinking maybe that wasn't such a wise choice. I mean, because everything that seemed unlikely ended up happening in this particular trial. And I'm not trying to be flippant about this. It just, this is, as you mentioned, this is precedent setting. This doesn't happen in the Canadian judicial system. And, and for it to be going on the way it has is, is really incredible. It's true. Um, although, you know, leading up to the fourth trial, um, the important missing piece of the puzzle that led to that fourth trial was that there had never been a jury who had heard uh, all the evidence against Badgero. Various judges over the years had made rulings that kept some of the, the evidence um, away from jurors. But this fourth trial, they heard everything. They got the whole, the whole work. So, um, so the likelihood of a fifth trial, I mean, there's nothing new to present uh, to jurors. Um, so unless something is uncovered and some new piece of evidence comes to light, uh, it, it seems unlikely that we'll, we'll go through yet another trial. But during that appeal process, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, as, as you say, that could be another year or two uh, before they actually go through with that. Uh, is the onus then on the defense to, to prove that there was something wrong with the, the trial, something wrong with the judgment? Yes, uh, it will be up to the defense to show either that there's, uh, that there's new evidence or that there was an error in law made by the judge. Um, and so, the, yeah, the defense will have to um, show that there's a, a legal reason for a new trial. But for the sake of the family, for Diane's family and for others that are watching and have been watching this for years, I, I guess one of the frustrations, and I think you and I talked about this uh, as you were covering the trial up in Kitchener, is that uh, with every passing year and with every uh, passing uh, new phase to this whole story, uh, you know, witnesses' memories fade. Uh, there's a concern here, but well, I don't recall that. And uh, I, I guess people are concerned right now that this thing may just fall off the rails altogether. And 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 that would be, I, I think, a great tragedy for a number of people that are watching this. It, it, that's a very real issue. At the fourth trial, um, we had uh, you know all kinds of evidence that had to be read into the record from previous trial transcripts because those witnesses had. Uh, died or were too unwell to testify in court. So um, that's that's a, a very real concern. I mean, it, it was it's been 36 years since since Diane's murder, and uh, you know I, I can't remember what I did last week, let alone 36 years ago. So it, it's you know it's really really testing the limits of memory. But uh, an appeal, though, when when it finally does happen, though, this is not retrying the case. I guess they they, they just argue about specific aspects of this, right? So um, the the first step is to go in front of the Ontario Court of Appeal and argue that um, the defense will argue that there should be a new trial, and it will be up to the appeal court to decide whether or not to put this over to to a fifth trial. Um, if that were to happen, Bill, if the Ontario Court of Appeal were to say, yes, uh, there are problems here and you need another trial, I would uh, imagine that the Crown Attorney would appeal that decision and we'd be back 
at the Supreme Court of Canada once again, where this court has been a couple of times in the past. As you've covered these things over the years, and, and this is, as you say, one of the most bizarre situations, but there was the Bosma trial. There have been other ones that you've covered many, many times as well, and appeals uh, to some of the, uh, the, the, the jury decisions or judicial decisions, I guess, in these situations. What's this do to the family of, of the victim as, as this goes on and on and on? It's, it's brutal. Um, you know, Carl, who was speaking on behalf of, of his family, um, said that, that they just have lost hope in the justice system. That this, um, you know, that again and again, they feel as though the killer uh, has more rights than the victim and the victim's family. Um, they live with it all the time. Um, you know, Diane is, is not a faded memory for them. She is still very much in their thoughts and in their lives every day. And uh, Carl was just a, a boy when his aunt was killed. And he he grew up um, with the horror of her death, you know, in his life. And, uh, you know, very, very difficult for him and very difficult for him now that he's a father. And, uh, you know, trying to explain this to his own children who never met their aunt, their great aunt. Um, it, it has an impact on them every day. I mean, I'm not going to get into the presupposing guilt or innocence. There's an appeal. I know there's there's been a conviction. We get that. That's that's on the record. But every time this comes forward, every time there's a story about this, uh, they they're reliving this. I mean, you know, they, we always talk about, uh, you know, is it through the process of grief there has to be some closure. You'd like to think there's going to be some closure at some time. I, I don't know that that ever happens for the families of victims like this. No, I, you know, I never use the word closure when I'm talking to families of homicide victims because for that, that very reason we just talked about, these cases never, ever end. Um, so I, I don't think there is closure. But, you know, I think the best that most families can hope for is the ability to, to move forward. But that hasn't happened for the Rwandowitz family because this case keeps going and going and going and is, you know, actively in the courts um, all the time. So you're right. I mean, um, Carl sat through the entire trial last fall, um, taking days off work and coming on his, his days off, you know, to be there. Um, he was at the Ontario Court of Appeal to, to hear um, uh, the bail application and, you know, we talked on the phone yesterday and uh, we kind of ended with, with Carl saying, well, I'll see you next time. And, you know, he was being very flippant, but it was, I, I got what he was saying. And that's, you know, we're, we're still in this. We're going to see each other again because it, 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 the story goes on. I, I don't want to try to figure out what's going to happen here from the defense when finally the, the, the appeal is actually being heard here. But you mentioned, Susan, uh, that in the last trial, the one that, uh, that you covered that was up in Kitchener, that there was information and, and testimony and, and evidence that was allowed in that trial that had not been previously allowed in some of the previous trials. Uh, yeah. is, is, is Potentially, is that one of the areas of concern that the defense might be concerned? Because I know that there was some, some uh, debate back and forth about even allowing that stuff into the, to the trial that just happened. Uh, that led to the conviction at that stage too is is that going to be the basis? Do you think maybe for the appeal? I you know I honestly don't know. Um, I don't know where the defense is going with this. Um, what I can say is that that new information. I, I say new. It had actually 
was evidence that it had been uncovered right at the time of the murder, but had just never been put before a jury. Mm-hmm. Um, it had been litigated at all levels of court, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada um, over years. So, it, I mean, it's been sort of looked at from every legal angle possible. Um, so I don't know. Um, I don't know if that could be raised as an issue once again or, or not. There's so many people involved in this and so many people that are, are, are hanging uh, on the result, uh, hopefully the result that's going to happen. I mean, we've talked about the Rowendowitz family. There's the Robertson family that you talk about uh, right. in this, too. And and, uh, and frankly, you talk to the Bajero family as well. I mean, because you know, th- there is human emotion involved in just about all sides of this right now. There is. And, um, you know, over the years, I have always uh, had a cordial relationship with the Badro family, with Robert himself. Um, so I spoke to his mom yesterday. And, you know, and that's part of what makes this whole story and whole, whole case so fascinating. You know, there is a, a whole family um, who's waiting for Rob to get out of, of prison and come home again. Um, they're very excited and very pleased. And, um, you know, it was a bit bizarre talking to his mom yesterday. We were having this whole conversation without even knowing whether Robert himself yet knows that he's made bail. Um, his lawyer said that, too. Um, because he's in prison, it's not easy to contact him, and uh, nobody's actually sure whether he knows yet that he's getting out. How does this impact you? You've been doing this for a long, long time, and, and, and you know, you're brilliant at what you do in the writing, but at the same time, there's, there's a human side to the people in the courtroom as well as you, as you sit through this and, and see not just the information and the evidence that's presented, but you see the, the reaction of those that are impacted by that as they go through this process, and in this case, time and time and time again. Absolutely. It's, uh, um, you, you know, these people, you talk to these people on a daily basis. I do. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I know all their backstories too. You know, I've written a lot about, um, crown attorney Cheryl Zick, who, who started on this case when she was an articling student. She actually helped, uh, assisted the first crown attorney who, who ran the first trial, um, back when she was still a student. And now she's, gone on to to be the crown at at three trials so you know the emotion that she showed um when the jury came back with its guilty verdict uh, last time um you know really struck a chord with me so yeah it's um it's hard not to um get personally involved to a certain extent um and you know i my thoughts always always come back to to diane this young woman who, of course, I, I never met, um, and yet I feel, I feel like I know so well because I've, I've lived her story and written her story and um, uh, heard so much about her over so many years. Well, we have no idea where this is going to end, and I guess for that matter, when it's going to end either. But uh, the latest development, uh, check out the piece in the spec today. It's a great piece, as always, by Susan Claremont. Susan, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you again. Have a good weekend. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A transformational exercise is ongoing right now with Hamilton's waterfront. And uh, Chris Phillips, of course, is the uh, lead for the West Harbor Waterfront Project for the City of Hamilton. 
and uh, he's going to join us right now to talk about what's going to be happening, how we can be part of this, and hopefully uh, the end result and how this is all going to roll out. Chris, thanks so much for the time, and uh, great to have you back on the program today. You too, Bill. Thanks for having me. Maybe just uh, by way of uh, setting some of the uh, the background here, let's talk about where you were, how we are, got to the point where we are now. Well, sure. I mean, look, uh, waterfront redevelopment, especially in the West Harbor in Hamilton, has been ongoing, as we've discussed, probably for, for about uh, two, three decades, uh, starting with, obviously, the uh, harbor, uh, uh, the, the cleanup of Hamilton Harbor and uh, great jewels down there like Bayfront Park and Pier 4 Park, and then, and then the waterfront trail that was built then uh, um, right after that. As we look to now redevelop the West Harbor, we're kind of looking at two kind of distinct and different areas that will undergo transformation. Uh, there's the area of uh, Pier 6 and 7, which basically is about going from the, uh, the Hamilton Yacht Club and Pier 4, uh, traveling east until uh, the new uh, Pier 7 promenade that we opened up uh, last year, the boardwalk and transient dock uh, uh, area. And then there's Pier 8, and Pier 8 uh, is, is the area that has always been planned for mixed-use residential and commercial development but also a, uh, a fantastic perimeter promenade park that will stretch all the way around the periphery of that park and be 30 meters wide. It's that park that we're now kind of looking at, and, and we decided we really want a, a park on that area uh, that uh, is, a, is of high-quality design. And so, therefore, we went out to the marketplace and went out to the experts and, uh, and created this fantastic design competition to actually look for professionals to come up with ideas on how to transform that area, which right now is, is uh, pretty much a, an asphalt waterfront trail along the water's edge. But how do we transform that into being a, a true uh, a fantastic promenade park? Chris, help me and maybe help our listeners to identify exactly what we're talking about. Because for a lot of us, you mentioned peer this, peer that. People don't understand what that is unless you've actually spent a fair bit of time down there. Uh, but you did give us a great reference point from the Yacht Club over to, uh, and I think a lot of people understand that, over to, say, the Williams Coffee Pub at Pier 8 and, and uh, the, well, Sarkoge. I won't ask you to comment on. But anyway, that's that area. But how far east does it go? Because obviously, uh, as you continue along that way, you eventually head over by Eastmount Park and, and, uh, and the brewery and things of that nature, too. So you're talking about a pretty extensive area, right? Correct. It's a it's a, a huge area of space as far as Pier 8 itself. It's about uh, 25 acres of land in, in total. Uh, it stretches basically from Discovery Drive, where Williams Cafe is located on the far western edge, and all the way over to the Haida uh, is basically okay. the best right. landmark. Uh, uh, and then Eastwood Park, as you mentioned, is, is a little bit south of the Haida uh, uh, on Burlington Street. Uh, but uh, when we talk about Pier 8, and in particular this Pier 8 Promenade Park, it will actually go from the Haida all the way over to the Williams Cafe, stretching about 30 meters in, in, uh, in width all the way around the periphery of that Pier 8. Today, if you were traveling down there or walking down there, it'd be the area where most people would have recognized the tall ships uh, uh, docked uh, during Canada Day weekend. And now, is everything on the table here right now? Because if, as I look at this in my mind's eye right now, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I, uh, there's a little bit of water, but there's a lot of concrete down there right now. Because these, in, in the past, obviously, we're loading docks and storage facilities, obviously, and things of this nature. That That is all going to be transformed. As, uh, uh, I guess, well, it depends on which one of these things you choose. But but everything is, is going to go. In other words, we're going to see a fair amount of green space, a lot of green space, between Williams Coffee Pub all the way over to the Haida. Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, or somewhere, depending on the design. 
Uh, totally correct. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, we, we've spent uh, uh, many years kind of looking at uh, grand visions or, or, uh, or ideas from concepts down there. Uh, the most, uh, the most uh, uh, kind of key one to that was our urban design study that we talked about a couple years ago uh, that showed the renterings on what, what Pier 8 promenade could look like and what the rest of the development could look like as well when you put the streets and the sidewalks and the, and the paths uh, into it. What this design competition was meant to do was to go out to uh, to a broad-based uh, set of experts and say, if you had this area based on the conditions and the visions that the community's already kind of weighed into in the in the uh, urban design guidelines, how would you actually implement it? What would be the specific elements that you would look at? And many, as you look at many of the proposals, and I had the chance yesterday along with many people from the public as well to listen to the design teams many of them kind of hit on the same types of elements um you know a, a bit of a journey through time looking at at how do you bring in some of that uh, heritage that hamilton and this waterfront in particular from the escarpment to the to the grass uh, and and uh, forest areas to the industrial heritage how do you take advantage of the eastern edge uh looking at the sunrise as an example how do you create that kind of front lawn and front porch uh, to the waterfront as you kind of look in, and how do you find these places where where you can both have gathering places on the one side, but also places where people can just sit, relax, breathe, enjoy the waterfront and everything to have. And it's amazing to see the uh, when you take all those same conditions and you you put them in great professional, creative people, and uh, to see the designs that they've come up with, the six very different designs as you look at them but when you kind of really kind of delve into them they all really have those same elements as you kind of look at them but but the city had to set some parameters i mean you've seen some pretty inventive stuff from these people and 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 we'll get into that in a second but you had to pretty much say look at it's just not a blank canvas now uh we want to see some stuff down here and you've heard these arguments chris for, for years now some people are saying, well, you know what, we really need residential. Boy, we can really cash in on that. People love to buy condos down by the waterfront, and we've seen that happen in other cities. Others are saying, no, 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 there's got to be green space. And still others are saying, well, what about somebody who lives up on the mountain? They want access to the water, too. How do you how do you marry all those ideas to find something that's going to be pleasing to, to most, if not all, people? As we've talked in the past, Bill, this project is, uh, like, like many other big transformational projects, uh, quite frankly, in any city or, or any area, is really about balance. It's about trying to balance uh, the, uh, the expectations of, of a wide variety of citizens. Uh, as you mentioned, people who live on the mountain or people who come from out of town, uh, balancing that, obviously, with those who live uh, directly adjacent to it. And in the area that we're talking about as well, balancing the, the way that citizens and people currently enjoy the waterfront. Because let's not forget, uh, this area here, although we're talking about these fantastic new uh, de- uh, designs and, and new innovative approaches to how we can reflect the waterfront, there's thousands of people that go down there each and every day uh, to enjoy the, the, uh, the walkway, the water's edge, fishing off the water's edge if, you're, if we were down at Pier 8 today. So it's a balancing act on all that. Yes, going back to your original question, the city certainly set a series of, of guidelines and parameters uh, that all these teams had to accommodate within it. Uh, it's, uh, it's very detailed. It really draws from the uh, design uh, guidelines that, that we established a couple of years back. Uh, but then the, these teams were, were allowed those, uh, basically those general uh, uh, guidelines that they had to kind of follow, but they were allowed to interpret it in, in whatever way possible. And I think what you see uh, 
for those uh, who have either had a chance to look at the renderings uh, in uh, in some of the media that's been out there, or whether they've gone online or, or were at the event yesterday, you'll see that each one of them brings a, a different approach to it, and certainly uh, their their own creativity to it. The uh, the design, the overall design that the city has, has done, and let's concentrate on the West Harbor because that's where a lot of this is being planned right now. Uh, you've, you've designated specific areas, and, and you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember back when, for instance, where the Waterfront Trail was, it was a terrible toxic gold dump, you know, the Lax property, and, and that's been cleaned up, and it's wonderful, and it's fabulous, and we all love that Waterfront Trail and the work that's gone on there. And that's essentially recreational. You don't want to see too much in the way of commercial there. Uh, you don't want to ignore that in the in the, the new development here right now. You still want to have some of that, but at the same time, uh, is there a percentage? Is there a ratio, Chris? When you're you're looking at commercial, residential plus uh, green space and, and and access to water that you're trying to do here? Well, on Pier Eight, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a balance. Uh, Pier Eight, it will be a little bit of everything uh, for for uh, a whole. It, it will be, um, you know, a key balancing place. Uh, Pier 8, for the most part, as it relates to development, uh, remember there's, there's two different uh, uh, processes going on. We, we have a process where we're uh, looking at uh, um, uh, finding the private sector development, who will actually do the development of commercial residential. And then there's the park and public space uh, elements, which we're talking about here today, being the Pier 8 Promenade Park. The Pier 8 Promenade Park is a 30-meter linear park that will stretch all the way around the water's edge. That's what this competition and the designs that you see is really about the park, the park that will actually be designed by the winner of this competition, ultimately will be built by the City of Hamilton and will continue to be owned by the City of Hamilton. At the same time, Pier 8, uh, with its streets and sidewalks, will be cut into a grid of nine development blocks of which a developer will be chosen uh, to develop those nine development blocks into mixed-use residential and commercial. So the Promenade Park design competition is really about the public space and the public amenities uh, that will be uh, completely open to the public, will be uh, built by and owned by the City of Hamilton uh, for today and, and generations to come. Uh, so I want to make sure that we're not confusing the development itself that will actually be built by private sector developers in the uh, in the remainder of Pier 8. Although those developments will happen and will cause great animation for the waterfront, the waterfront itself in this promenade park will be for all Hamiltonians. Well, exactly, but that's it. I mean, in... You know, for the individual that's going to walk down there 10, 15 years from now, they're going to see all of that and just, okay, and they're not going to separate one from the other. They're just going to see this residential. But i got to ask you, maybe by way of definition, when you say park, in some people's minds, Chris, that means green space. They think of park, they think of like East Mount Park or East Wood that's, that's down in that particular area. Lots of green space, uh, you know, soccer pitches and things. Uh, yet parks can also include amenities. Uh, and a lot of those, like uh, you go down to the Navy Yards in Chicago, they consider that a park. But, uh, you know, there are recreational facilities, there's eating establishments down there, there are uh, attractions. I think they've actually even got some rides down there uh, in the summertime as well. Uh, what, what, what do you foresee when you say parkland? Or, uh, what, what, what can and cannot go in a situation like that? 
Well, well, the park uh, itself, I mean, as you said, parks can come in uh, all shapes and sizes. I just uh, personally came back from uh, from a family vacation in New York City. And uh, uh, as it would, of, of course, I went to several different waterfront parks uh, in New York City, uh, whether you're talking about Battery Park or whether you're talking about the Pier uh, 62 Park or whether you're all talking of them very about different. The Brooklyn, uh, correct, or whether you're talking the Brooklyn uh, Heights Park or the Brooklyn Bridge Park. Um, in, in fact, uh, a park uh, is something different to everybody. When we're talking about the park as it relates to the perimeter park, we're really talking about a public space. Uh, it will have some elements of greenery, but of course we're not talking about soccer pitches and, uh, and baseball diamonds on, on the periphery of Pier 8. Uh, what we are talking about is more of a passive park. And if we're talking about in a Hamilton context, Gore Park is a park, a Gage Park is a park, um, and, and certainly you've mentioned Eastwood Park earlier on, or Bayfront Park. They're, they're all different public spaces for different types of gathering, different types of people, different types of, of experiences. As it relates to Pier 8, on the commercial side, I think going back to what I said earlier on, I, I think we, we need to recognize the fact that Pier 8 will have a, a, a significant amount of commercial development that will already be included uh, in the ground floor of, uh, of the Pier 8 developments themselves. We're not looking for more commercial along the periphery of Pier 8 Park. What we are looking for, though, is different types of experiences that an individual who goes down there uh, will have as a, if they're looking to rollerblade or walk their dog or, or, uh, or their kids to play, uh, or just uh, being able to kind of look out and, and enjoy the, the scenic atmosphere as you look, uh, whether it be east or west uh, on the promenade. Uh, so there, uh, we wouldn't expect any real commercial endeavors to be on the water's edge itself. We're looking for it to be public space and, and public uh, access to it. But at the same time, uh, remembering that these parks, as well as the development that will take place on Pier 8, they happen uh, concurrently, and uh, we want them to complement each other. So to use your example of, of New York City, Bill Morley Battery Park, then, which is green space, walkways, et cetera, and maybe uh, lookout points, et cetera, lookout over the water, that sort of thing. Correct. And again, I don't want to prejudge you. You'll be able to see the proposals online or, or in person. Yeah. Uh, you'll be able to get a, a better picture than, than obviously uh, maybe what I'm uh, doing to describe on the radio here today. But you'll see how how different design firms have taken those same uh, visions and those same uh, items, but they've uh, they've made made them look different, and uh, they'll be different things to different people. All right, let me ask you then, because uh, we've got a couple of minutes left here. Let's talk about that public consultation board. They've only got a limited amount of time to actually weigh in on this. How can they do that? Uh, they can do that either online at hamilton.ca slash pier8parkdesign uh, or hamilton.ca slash westharbor is, is another way you can get there. Um, people can see it uh, also in person, all the display boards uh, at a variety of different uh, venues, um, namely Lister Block, Williams Fresh Cafe, and the Evergreen Storefront on James Street North between now and September 10th. So the public does have a chance to review and give, uh, give their opinions uh, on this. Uh, check it out. It's uh, it's a monumental exercise, and, and you can be a part of this as well as uh, they start to reshape the way that our waterfront looks. Uh, Chris, we'll stay in touch as this unfolds over the next little while. And again, thanks as always for the time today. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks so much, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.